Thank you, Aaron, for the kind introduction. Um, One of the joys of the work that I do is getting to be at the ground level of seeing something like this be only a dream and then having the opportunity to observe it uh, come into fruition, which is super awesome. And I still remember uh, we were doing the assessment for Aaron and Becky and Brandon and Hannah and uh, years, I don't know how many years ago that was, but uh, the assessment, what that is, is like an interview to say, will your idea work and, and has God called you to that and, and uh, how can we help you in essence is what we're trying to find out. And I just can't tell you how exciting it was to step down on the street and look at this beautiful space and to see the signs and to just recognize all the prayers, all the years of support and encouragement that so many have had in helping what is here today become a reality. And we know you're still on that journey just like all of us. And so it's just a great honor to be able to be here today. And I just want you to know just we are so thankful for what it is that God is continuing to do in this community and uh, really praying for you all. So uh, just want to ask the Lord if you'd, if you'd kind of join me in prayer as we, as we jump in, just ask for his assistance. So let's just pray for a moment and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, God, this community is your church. It is the bride of Christ, that we are your people. And so we're seated here today underneath your sovereign hand, believing that the gospel changes hearts and that your word has a ministry of that work of transformation for us today. And so I just pray for everybody here, whatever our story, wherever it is that we are in our journey of faith, Lord, that you might open our eyes to see, soften our hearts to be transformed, and Lord, just help our ears to hear what it is that you have to say uniquely for us uh, from your word and for your glory in our lives. And so we pray this and just dedicate this uh, message now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know you're in the Proverbs, and uh, in the middle of this series, I'm just going to pick, pick up kind of where you've been going. And uh, we're going to be looking at a topic today that is in the Proverbs. It's a theme, though, that is seldom spoken of in sermons. I think that's why it intrigued me so much to engage in this topic. And it's a topic that is the answer to a following riddle. So if you like riddles, uh, listen to this. And those of you who are good at that kind of thing, you might, might understand the topic today. Here's the riddle. It's, I weaken all men for hours each day. I show you strange visions while you are away. I take you by night, by day take you back. None suffer to have me, but do from my lack. Okay, does anybody know what the answer is? Sleep, right. And you may have... Maybe you got an email and knew I was going to be talking about this anyway. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, yeah, it's sleep. It's sleep. And, uh, and that's going to be the topic of today's conversation. Now, my question for you is, what's your experience been with sleep? We all have unique experiences. For some of us, sleep comes really easy. Uh, my wife used to always tell me that, like, I could fall asleep anywhere at any time. And uh, for others of us, though, it's very difficult, right? We've, so we've had challenges with sleep. Perhaps there are seasons of your life where it's been easy and seasons where it's been difficult, right? There are physical reasons that some of us have for why sleep is 
difficult. You know, maybe it's a medical condition, or maybe uh, you drink too much caffeine and so you don't sleep well. Um, But in my experience, and perhaps in yours as well, I think that sleeplessness is more often related to a a psychological state of mind, to, to the way in which our emotions are functioning within us. Recently, my wife and I, we went through a difficult transition in our life. And I can tell you that in the midst of that, we didn't sleep very well. Um, a few weeks ago, we dropped off our daughter, our second daughter, at college in Louisville. We live in Madison. And we dropped her off at Louisville. And I can tell you that first night when she was in the dorms and we're sleeping where we were staying, uh, we didn't sleep. It was restless that night. Uh, we wept some tears because we knew we'd be leaving our little girl seven hours away in this city of Louisville. And according to my research, this same idea that that our emotions are connected with our sleeping and and that we all struggle in in some measure with sleep, it's really uh, fleshed out in our culture. 63% of all Americans say that their sleep needs are not met, okay? About 15% of adults 19 through 64 say they sleep less than six hours on weeknights, okay, which is, of course, a lot less than the seven to eight hours that are recommended. Um, Comparing today's data on sleep with data from back in 1964, it appears that on average, we sleep an hour less a night than we used to as a people here in the United States. Um, According to the Center uh, for Disease Control, sleep insufficiency, it's linked to all sorts of problems in our culture. It's linked to motor vehicle crashes industrial disasters, occupational errors, and that people who experience sleep insufficiency, they're more likely to suffer from hypertension, from diabetes, depression, obesity, cancer, and and in an overall reduction in their quality of life. Um, It's estimated that 50 to 70 million people in our country have what they call a, a wakefulness disorder or a sleep disorder. Um, though you'll starve without food or water in 14 days, if you got absolutely no sleep, you can die in about 10 days. So it's kind of, kind of crazy. Um, in a conversation I had with a physician friend about this issue, he noted that sleep, it's kind of a mystery, scientifically speaking, uh, but that the treatment in sleep disorders, uh, they found that psychological therapies are just as effective as medical treatments. So, so not only is how we sleep a significant problem in our culture that has very real consequences, but it's also heavenly influenced by this psychological state of being, okay? So what we're going to see today, though, that's very, very interesting is that the Bible not only addresses the issue of sleep, but it also does the same thing of what we have observed. It links sleep to our state of mind. And we're going to see this in Proverbs 3. And so if you have a Bible and want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read for you Proverbs 3, verses 21 through 26. So here's what it says. My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you and ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. 
When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. So here we're seeing that direct link between fear and anxiety and one's ability to sleep. Now, another way of saying is uh, verse 24 is this. If you're not afraid, if you're not anxious, then your sleep will be sweet. Now, when we interpret Scripture, um, a good preacher like Brandon or Aaron, you're going to hear them say things like this. We can't understand what Scripture is saying without first understanding the worldview of the person who wrote the Scripture as well as the audience to which that person was writing. And so in this case, we've got King Solomon, author of Proverbs, and he's uh, connecting this lack of sleep to what? To fear. Now, how did Solomon and how did his audience, the nation of Israel, view God in such a way that would help them to address their fears? Well, the, the answer to that question is found in a fundamental biblical understanding of God, namely that we worship a God who never sleeps. We worship a God who never sleeps. And we see this in Psalm 121, verses 1 through 4 and verse 7. Let me read those for you now. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He watches over you. Will, he who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. And so we see the psalmist, he, he writes here to Israel saying that their help in time of trouble comes from who? It comes from the Lord. And that this Lord that they worship, the God of the people of Israel, he never sleeps He never slumbers. He's always watching. He's always protecting. He's always guiding. And this idea, it's also mentioned in Proverbs 15.3, which reads, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Uh, Jesus affirmed the same idea in John 5.17. He was responding to the Jews who were criticizing him for performing a miracle on the Sabbath. And this is what he said to them. He said, My father is working until now, and I am working. So what Jesus meant is he said, My father has always been working since the very beginning of creation. And the idea is that somehow God's work can coexist with the principle of Sabbath, right? Because we know from the creation story that when the world was created at the seventh day, God rested, right? But he didn't sleep. He rested, but he didn't sleep because what we find out, right? He never stops working. And so you may be asking the question, uh, and this is the question we need to answer. What relevance does the idea that God never sleeps has to our life? And the answer is, um, first and foremost, The fact that God never sleeps sets us apart from him. We are different than him. Uh, Remember the opening line of the riddle that I shared today. It's it's this, I weaken all men for hours each day. 
So the fact that we sleep, it by its very nature magnifies our weakness and contrarily, it magnifies God's strength. Okay? Another way of saying it is that our need for sleep, it's a picture, it's like an illustration of how dependent we are on the God who never sleeps. Now, the fact that our, our, our need for sleep illustrates our weakness, it really shouldn't surprise us. This is a theme throughout Scripture. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, the Lord told him, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So Paul's showing us, he's saying, Embracing our weakness somehow gives us access to the strength of God. So if you want to be strong, embrace that you're weak. Okay? And this idea, it's behind this concept that we need sleep, but God doesn't need sleep. Okay? It puts us once again in the position of recognizing our insufficiency and our need for God. Now, you don't have to live long in this world before you recognize your insufficiency, (laughs) before you recognize your need for God. You see, the only person who's trustworthy, hear me, the only person who's trustworthy is God. Why? Well, we can trust him because he's always there. He's dependable. He's never going to fail us because he's never sleeping or slumbering. He's always watching. He's always providing. He's always working. He's always caring. No matter whether you feel it or not, he is there. No matter what trial you're facing. So how comfortable are you with this idea of your weakness? You see, this, it's a biblical worldview we need to embrace. And I think it's a hard worldview for us to embrace. We live in a culture that heralds the trumpet. Just become its self-actualization. It's just become the best version of you. Love yourself enough and you'll be happy. But the gospel says embrace your weakness and that God alone is sufficient. So God the Father never sleeps. But if we don't sleep, we literally die. God the Father is strong, so what? We can embrace our weakness. God the Father is always working, therefore, we can work, and we can live, and we can sleep in a restful way. So now that we've considered this nature of God and his relationship to his people, this biblical worldview that the text is rooted in. Let's now take a look at what the scriptures tell us about our sleep, okay? And in particular, what we're going to look at is how it is that sleep is affected by our sinfulness, okay? So we've all got this problem of sin, this disobedient heart that strays in our allegiance to things other than the Lord, okay? And how does that affect our sleep? Well, let's look at four, four things. The first is laziness, Okay, laziness leads us to abuse sleep. How? By sleeping too much. Okay, I've, got, I've raised three sons, and uh, for whatever reason, I'm not trying to be uh, sexist here, but it just, I've seen that pattern a little bit more in my boys. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, uh, this, 
this proverb applies. So Proverbs 6, 9 through 11, um, just hear these words about laziness. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. So the picture here is of a person who just sleeps all day. The hours of productivity, they're wasted in bed. And the consequence of such behavior, according to the Proverbs, is poverty. Now, remember, again, looking back to the original audience, this was written to an ancient society. And so the only time they had to get work done was when the sun was up, right? And so for you to sleep during the daytime hours would be to miss out on the only opportunity you had to make a day's wages, And so this makes a lot of sense. If you sleep during the day, you're going to not be productive. You'll have poverty. But this teaching still has relevance today, but we just need to look at it a little differently, right? The meaning for us is not so much related to when we work or when we sleep, but if we're exchanging sleep for productivity by either sleeping too much or by sleeping when we should be working. Okay, so laziness in this context is really loving sleep too much, okay? Loving sleep so much that it robs you of your productivity. And this sin of laziness now leads us to another sin. Number two, sin affects our sleep when we trust in our safety more than God. Okay, an interesting one here. Sleep Our sleep is affected when we trust in safety, our personal safety, more than the Lord. Uh, Look at another proverb, Proverbs 3, 24 through 26. It says this. When you lie down, or we read it at the beginning, actually, but we're going to revisit it. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. So the picture here is quite simply that if Israel trusts in their own ability to protect themselves, okay, if they're just trusting in you know, a perfect military strategy or a mighty fortress, what's it saying? It's going to result in sleepless nights. So what, what the, the author is trying to get across here in this proverb is that if you push back, if you reject this idea that you can somehow secure yourself, but embrace the idea that God alone is your protector, then hear this. If you look at these verses, even if your enemy brings ruin to you, even then the Lord will be your confidence. So this is very interesting. So, According to this, sweet sleep is not the promise that bad things won't happen. It's not that. Your ability to sleep sweetly is that no matter what happens, you can trust God to care for you and to provide for you. Now, practically speaking, what this doesn't mean is that you just don't lock your door at night. It doesn't mean that you let your kids play in the street, right? Oh, God will protect them. It's not foolishness. Uh, This proverb is not a license to be reckless, 
But what I think it does mean is this. Once you've done everything in your power to reasonably ensure your safety, from that point forward, you trust the Lord. You just trust the Lord. And this is particularly challenging because we live in a culture of violence. There's a lot of violence around us. Think about terrorism, right? The very nature of terrorism is to inflict fear on people. Um, Think about the gun violence that's happening all across our country. Now, the unfortunate response to all this violence is that we have politicians on all sides of all issues trying to convince you that if you vote for them, they can make you safe. But what we need to remember as Christians, and from this proverb, is that there's really no law, there's no agency that can make us completely free from danger. So the point is this, that our only ultimate hope for safety, it's not in government, but it's in God. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pass laws to make things safer. I'm not saying that we you know, shouldn't put our trust in law enforcement, all those kinds of things, and, and be supportive of reform in those ways. But, but we need to recognize that trusting those laws alone will never prevent us from harm, right? That as long as there's sin in the world, there's always going to be people threatening our safety. And so the point of Proverbs 3 is that the safest place to be is not free from human danger, but resting in the loving protection of a father who never sleeps, who's always working. You can sleep at night, not because there's no assurance of pain or suffering or difficulty, but because you have a heavenly father who is working for your good. So we've seen that sleep not only affects, um, it's not only affected by our laziness, and it's not only affected by the anxieties that we have out of a fear of losing safety, but sin also affects our sleep when we trust too much in our work and in our need to define our success by our work, okay? Think, uh, look with me at Ecclesiastes 2.22 through 23. This is what it says. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. And then the author says, this too is meaningless. Okay, so we're seeing this portrait here in Ecclesiastes of a person who's driven by their work. Okay, their desire to be successful means this person works long hours. Okay, that even when night comes, they can't turn their mind off. It's always going on the next thing to be done. So they never really rest. And this area of sin, it's, it's known in modern terms as like workaholism, okay? Or merit-based value, worth, whatever term you want to use. But the, this is probably, I think, one of the most culturally challenging realities for us. We tend to equate our success with our ability to do something, to perform, to accomplish our goals. But you see, when your sense of value is rooted in your ability to be successful in your work, then a couple things may happen. You'll either sleep too little because you're so restless, thinking, what else needs to be done? What else could I do? Or you'll get angry with people when they interfere with your sleep, right? 
Because if they threaten your sleep, then you won't be as productive and you won't gain success in life. So whatever the case, when a person's success is through this idolatry of work and performance, then like the man in Ecclesiastes 2, it's going to rob you of your ability to sleep well. Right? And it's going to rob you of your ability to express your sleep as a sign of weakness, as a sign of need, as an opportunity to rest in the fact that God alone is sufficient, therefore, I need not be. Okay, so we've seen how these three areas of sin affect our ability to sleep well. If you sleep too much, right, if you love sleep too much, it leads to laziness. If you love your safety too much, if you value personal safety so much, what does it do? It leads to fear and to anxiety. But if you love success too much, what? It leads to a heart that never rests. You're always wanting to perform, to do more. But there's one other way that sin affects our sleep that we're not responsible for. And this, this one we're not responsible for. It's number four. The area um, uh, where, where sleep is affected by sin is just the brokenness of the world in which we live. Okay? Uh, and we can see this example. The Apostle Paul gives it to us in 2 Corinthians 11. And what he's doing in this section of Scripture is he's highlighting all of the trials he's been experiencing. Here's what he says in verse 27. He says, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And so here we see an example where it's not Paul's sin, but it's the sin of the world in which he's living that is robbing him of sleep. Um, Paul's sufferings were not because he was a guy looking for trouble, right? It was because he was following God's call in his life to, to spread the gospel to all people, to plant churches. And in doing so, he experienced dangerous trips and natural disasters and persecution from people who hated his message. And so his sleepless nights came in the wake of snake bites and of shipwrecks and of beatings. So his, his sleepless nights were less about personal sin and more about the sinful and broken world that surrounded him. Now, I know some of you, like I said at the very beginning, some of you have medical reasons that you don't sleep well. And this is an example of this. Some of you have toddlers and babies, so you don't sleep well, right? It's a product of your circumstances, There's a lot of other reasons. Some of you maybe have to work the night shift, and so sleep's always been challenging for you. What I want you to hear is this, that whatever, you know, whether the struggles you have with sleep are the product of your own sin or the product of the broken world in which you live, the help for all of these things is still in the same place. Namely, your help is trusting in a God who never sleeps. Now, to drive home the point, uh, I'm going to read from you from Psalm 3, 1 through 6. This is what it says. Okay, this is David, all right, and I'll give you the context in a moment. Saying this, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, you're a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts up my head. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. 
Okay, see that contrast? Enemies all around. I lie down and sleep. I wake again. Why? Because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear through tens, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Okay, so King David, the context here is, he's running for his life from his son Absalom, who has upset his throne, and his armies are trying to catch David and murder him, end his life. And though his circumstances were horrible, I mean, can you imagine your own son trying to murder you? The army's coming after you, even though all this was going on, and he'd had every excuse to not sleep well. We see in verse 5, what? That David slept and that the Lord sustained him. So his rest did not come from military strategy or being in an impenetrable fortress, did it? His rest came from his impenetrable faith in an all-powerful God who never sleeps, who never slumbers, who's always working on his behalf. Jesus said these words in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is inviting us to that same rest, and we know not long after those words were delivered, he made his way to the cross, and on that cross, he took upon himself the punishment we deserve for sin so that we can look to him in faith, trusting our lives to him, inviting his forgiveness for our sin, and what? We can enter into rest. This is the message of the gospel, right? So the invitation is this. It's an invitation to rest. Not in our work, not in our safety, Not in our ability to be lazy and sleep and just have fun in this world. No. We rest in the work done for us by Christ on the cross. And it's that picture that transforms us. It's that picture that changes us. It's that picture of rest in the work of God that saves us. So a restless heart that can actually sleep well at night is, is a heart that is resting in that truth. Now, five years after we planted the Vine Church in Madison, which is why we moved to Madison, I had this breaking point in my life um, where I was put on this mandatory sabbatical. And it was in part for this reason. Um, My drive for ministry success, okay? I'm I'm admitting this right now. I mean, I was that textbook guy who was couldn't turn my mind off at night, always going, always thinking, what do we need to do? As you, as you know, church planning is a hard thing. And I went on this sabbatical because I was in an unhealthy place, right? My inability to rest in the Lord, it was affecting my sleep. It was affecting my personal health. It was affecting my relationships. And so stepping away from that ministry work for a season, admitting that I had a problem, it humbled me. 
It forced me to deal with my pride and to embrace my weakness in a new way. And my appeal to you this morning is that some of you need to go on a similar journey. Now, obviously, you know, a forced sabbatical is not the reality for most of us. But humbling ourselves is. Humbling ourselves is. Of course, even as we embrace humility, we're still going to deal with the fact that life is often difficult, right? And life requires us to work hard. What we need to understand is that working hard can coexist with trusting the Lord, right? Protecting our sleep doesn't mean that we don't work hard. Um, Proverbs 31 describes a woman who doesn't rest a lot, right? That she gets up while it's still night. It's talking about a mother and her family and a wife. She gets up while it's still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants, and her lamp does not go out at night. So resting in God and, and, eat, and sleeping well at night as well doesn't mean that we don't work hard, right? Sometimes we have to put in long hours. But what it does mean is this, that we don't love our work so much that it drives us to abuse our sleep and others, as though our ultimate success depends on the things we do or accomplish in life. So learning to rest in God and protect sleep doesn't mean we don't occasionally also go out and watch a late movie, okay, or stay up late talking with friends. Um, it doesn't mean we don't take naps, right? We take naps often. We should, we should enjoy sleep. I have a pastor who used to say, the most spiritual thing you can do on a Sunday afternoon is take a nap. Sometimes, in, uh, for some of you, the most obedient thing you can do is go home and sleep today. Um, I gave a sermon, I remember a few months ago, on Sabbath. And there was a woman in the congregation who, for the first time in 20 years, she went home and took a nap. That was the best thing she could do. She could just say, hey, I need you, Lord, more than I need productivity. So learning to rest, meaning that you should, you know, you should take time enjoying good things. But that your desire for leisure and recreation shouldn't drive you to what? Laziness, right? It's all a balancing issue here. So how this morning is the Lord inviting you to change the way you view sleep? See, at the end of the day, over-loving sleep or overloving your safety, or overloving success can actually lead you to sinfully abuse your need for good and restful sleep. So when we rest in the God who never sleeps, then it doesn't matter if there's police shootings, doesn't matter if there's an intense work schedule, doesn't matter if there's anxious thoughts, because those things are not the controlling influence in our life, right? We are embracing our weakness and our need for God, the one who never sleeps. So even our, if our ability, though, is beyond our uh, control to sleep, even if we can't sleep for the fact that we live in a broken world, we can still live in such a way to know that God is our shelter, God is our provider, and therefore we can be at rest in him. And when the time for sleep comes, we celebrate that as a gift of grace. Now, to conclude, I'm going to share with you this quote um, from John Piper that beautifully summarizes this whole principle. So listen closely to this. Sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are 
not God. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, but Israel will, for we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we're in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into a helpless sack of sand once a day. How humiliating the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. Love Piper's use of words there. Sleep is a parable that God is God and we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while a hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Don't let the lesson be missed out on you. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and never sleeps. He is not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with the peaceful trust that casts all anxieties on him and sleeps. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this picture in the Proverbs of the importance of sleep that is rooted not in personal circumstances or personal achievement, but in a deep desire to know and trust and rest in who it is that you are as the God who never sleeps and never slumbers. We pray today, Lord, that you would grant us deep rest and that we would cherish all the more the opportunity that we have to lay down and sleep, uh, not as a burden or not as an idol to our life, but as an opportunity to model once again our deep need for you, that you can be trusted for our safety and for our life. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.